0: Exploring the intersection of, of medicine, medicine, sports, and pop culture, this is the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. Dr. Rudolph Virchow, the father of modern pathology, stated in the 19th century that, quote, between animal and human medicine, there is no dividing line, nor should there be, end quote. Quite a dramatic take, and one that makes me contemplate my own experience in medicine. As I look back at my medical training, there were very few times that we discussed the health of animals. We didn't talk about their anatomy, we rarely talked about the diseases they got. In fact, the only time we mentioned animals in medical school was when we discussed zoonotic disease, that is, diseases that are transmitted from animals to humans. Rabies is one that comes to mind. But that was really the extent of it. And in my mind, I haven't ever really thought there was a need for me to know about animal health. My guest today, a physician herself, has dedicated her career to changing this attitude, arguing that we need a species-spanning approach to health. Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz is a cardiologist, an academic, and an author who holds faculty appointments at both Harvard Medical School and at UCLA. Trained as both a cardiologist and an evolutionary biologist, Dr. Nadison Horowitz joined me to make the case that the secret to improving the health of humans might just be to pay closer attention to how animals on planet earth get sick and get better. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Nadison Horowitz, welcome to the Doctors Are People Two podcast. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to be here.
0: We like to start all of our conversations with this question, what is your typical morning routine?
1: The word typical is going to make me laugh. Um, Yeah, one of the things that I'm really uh, kind of happiest about my life right now is that there there kind of isn't a typical, uh, and I I really appreciate the varied kinds of activities that I get to do. But um, these days, since the pandemic, I, of course, you know, I was doing a lot of teaching, and that was all very much, you know, at home. But now I'm back, I'm kind of gradually moving into – uh, the new, the new world. And I, on any given morning, I might be doing a procedure um, at the zoo, at the LA zoo, where I've now for over a decade been a cardiovascular consultant. I may be teaching a course in evolutionary medicine. Um, I am, uh, we're putting together a museum um, kind of exhibit for, in Portugal for our Zubiquity Conference, where we're going to be looking at, at paleopathology in other animals Uh, So I'll be on the phone with Portugal. So I have a varied, an extremely varied existence now. Um, And it's, it's, uh, so it's hard to answer what's typical.
0: I like it as a, a pediatric ER doctor I, I'm a fan of variety so I, I need that in my life it, it's nice to hear you do too. We'll get into some of the topics that you just mentioned but let's start with your journey. Uh, upon reading a little bit more about you and learning more about you I think the first thing that stood out to me was that you're a cardiologist and an evolutionary biologist. I think two things I don't necessarily put together often. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and, and your path to those specialties? Yeah,
1: sure. So um I uh, yeah I was um, up until about 2005 or so. Uh, I was uh, pretty typical, I think, in my path. I mean, I had a few tangents, but I finished my undergraduate work. I did I'd done a master's in sort of history of science with a little bit of an evolutionary background. But anyway, I went on to med school at UC San Francisco, and um, I ended up doing uh, two residencies. Actually, I uh, I came back to Los Angeles, which is where I had grown up, and so I did. I was at UCLA. And I originally thought that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, both of my folks are, um, so it's kind of a family business, and I enjoyed it. So I matched in, I did a one-year, I think they called it categorical, where it, was, it was a one-year internship where I kind of had a lot of internal medicine, and then I did psychiatry. And um, at that point, I ended up, um, by the time I finished the residency, I, I finished the residency and I did chief residency, but I really wanted to do internal medicine. I had missed it, and I, uh, so I turned, I went, I turned around, and I retrained here at UCLA in internal medicine, and I was very, very happy with that. I went on to do, uh, here at UCLA, a cardiology fellowship, so a three-year um, general cardiovascular fellowship, followed by advanced training in heart failure and, and imaging, and then was on faculty, so I was, you know, pr- I think people listening to this are pretty familiar with what I was doing. I was, uh, you know, a lot of clinical work. Um, you know, attending on consults or in CCU at a busy outpatient uh, clinic, a lot of echo, a lot of transesophageal echo, um, had a couple of kids. So it was just like that whole period was just, I can't even remember specific things sometimes. I just remember being running and being busy and doing a lot of juggling and, and being very happy actually. Um, so then just uh, one day, I mean, literally, just got one of these telephone calls from one of the veterinarians at Los Angeles Zoo, and they had um, they had a chimpanzee who they had some concerns, had neurological, they had some neurological findings. They they thought they were concerned that there might have been trauma um, and a bleed or some neurological event. So they asked me if I would do a, tr- a transesophageal echo just to exclude an intracardiac source, like an emboli, and I, and, and that was such a um, you know. I mean, anyone who got that call would, in my mind, who could, like, get over there would say yes. I mean, if you're doing TEs all day long like I was, it was like, of course, why wouldn't I? So um, that experience was interesting, and, um, and actually, that particular chimp had multiple thrombi in her left and right atria. She had biatrial enlargement. She had cardiomyopathy. And it turned out she had a restrictive cardiomyopathy that, you know, you sometimes see in humans, and at that moment i it was it was the first of what became like many many epiphanies that that the diseases of humans are not unique to humans which on the one hand sounds like an extremely obvious point but as it turns out i think because of the way medical education works and some other social factors physicians are not always aware of that um, but anyway, so I did that, and then like a month later, they had a gorilla, and they were concerned about an aortic dissection, and uh, so I did a TE for that, and, and one thing led to another, and over the course of several years, um, I had an opportunity to just really get exposed to the range of diseases that occur not just in, in zoo animals, but I expanded what I was doing to include wild, um, agricultural, um, domestic animals, and got really uh I became my eyes were just open to the overlap between human and animal medicine. That led to um, an idea that maybe I this was this was something that was book worthy. Um, and again, I was you know very busy doing the cardiology stuff and uh, the human stuff. Um, but it, it felt like there were so many insights that I was having about human health um, or ideas that it that my colleagues didn't even know about and people that I really admired and respected and I considered to be just, you know, really leaders and experts in the field and that just hadn't been exposed to some of the information. I mean, the examples were things like um, I was called one day about a lion uh, who had, who was Kipnik, you know, of course, the zoo veterinarians, I mean, they're incredible. They're like multiply board certified, they take incredible care of their patients. They they do it all, right? So they do they're doing internal medicine, pediatrics, interventions. I mean they're they're very um, they're very capable and brilliant, um, but they also have to make diagnoses in some situations just through observation. And you know, and in the case of a lion, obviously that would be the case until you can get the animal sedated and intubated and and you know, cared for. So, um, and I remember she said the veterinarian said, "Yeah, we're worried that she she's tachypnic. She doesn't look well. She's not eating. There's definitely something off with her, and we think that she may have um, a pericardial effusion and and maybe even tamponade physiology." And I remember getting that call. Uh, I was on the freeway and I was thinking, like, how, like, why would you go there? I mean. Why would tachypnea take you to Tampa, not necessarily? And it turned out, it turned out that um, big cats, so felids, in captive environments, uh, have pretty high rates of breast cancer, and um, which is a fascinating story. And so I was, I, I, so as I started learning about uh, comparative mammary cancer, and I mean, and actually, breast cancer has been identified in all of the mammalian lineages so it's a widespread vulnerability um, but when i came back to UCLA and i was talking to some really very very knowledgeable people in the in this realm they, they really had no idea that there were these taxa who had increased you know breast cancer um vulnerability and even that there were these epidemics of mammary cancer happening in the world like up in canada in the saint lawrence estuary there were um uh, marine mammals who were dying, beluga whales who were dying of adenocarcinomas. A, a lot of them were were metastatic mammary uh, cancers. So it, I just saw that there was there was this kind of gap, this knowledge exchange gap between human docs and and uh, veterinarians. So uh, that led to uh, writing a book proposal and at the same time um, developing these conferences to bring veterinarians and physicians together. And uh, I worked with a, a writer, a brilliant woman named Katherine Bowers, and the two of us came up with a, a name for what we were doing. And um, at that point, I knew a lot about One Health, which you mentioned earlier, but um, but we really felt that this, what One Health was was not what our book was. It, our book was sort of adjacent to that or part of it. but So we wanted to come up with a word that would describe bringing two cultures together. And so we wanted a Greek root or a Latin root and a Greek root or, you know, two different. So we And Catherine is like the brainiac with all of these things. And so um, zo is uh, Greek for animal and ubiquity, you know, is the Latin. So Zubiquity was born and we called the book Zubiquity, and we called our Zubiquity conferences, Zubiquity conferences for that reason. And, uh, and yeah. you know, a lot of things happened after the books.
0: I think it's a fascinating path. Uh, I think hearing you speak about how you got into this field reminds me of a, a former, a previous guest that we had, uh, Dr. Oren Godfrey, who is a neurosurgeon who does advising for television shows. And his path also started with a call out of the blue uh, someone asking him to evaluate a patient that was actually a character on the television show they were putting together. So I think the, you know, you never know who's going to be calling you or maybe at this point, you know, messaging on you on Instagram or Twitter, or something like that. You mentioned yeah, One I, Health. Yeah.
1: Just one thing that's so funny, because it reminded me as I was driving in this morning, thinking about what, what we were going to talk about. It wasn't sure exactly. Um I was remembering those early days uh, with the vets. And I mean, I I enjoyed it so much. Like the first couple of procedures, I was so hooked. I mean, you know, if you're called to go in and do a transesophageal echo on a gorilla to rule out an aortic dissection, I mean, that is a pretty good morning, right? It's for for a weirdo like me, it is. And I think that like, I know a lot of physicians who are really into it, right? So it was, um, and so I really, really loved it, but I wanted to, and I wanted to make sure that they kept asking me back, and so part of it was, you know, you're you're an outsider because as a physician you're not a veterinarian and you're an outsider, so you're coming in, and I I just wanted to do like an A plus job, and it reminded me um, of when you're a medical student and you're on your rotation that those first days of the rotation, or when you're um, when you're like a junior, like you're an R one or an R two or whatever, that you you kind of listen more than you. You you know you you're, you listen and not speak so much. You kind of um, you adopt a real position of humility and and those skills of like having done two residencies and then like the fellowship. All that, it, it was it was really kind of similar. And um, so just I don't know for some reason in thinking about the path, how all of that training. There's like a lot of lessons in that training that you know just the culture of learning something new.
0: Barbara, I think when most of us think about the intersection of animal health and human health, we think about zoonotic disease, something that we're we're taught in medical school, we learn in our medical training. And when we're talking about One Health and some of the overlaps that you're talking about, we're really looking at that intersection and that dynamic in a different sense. Can you tell us a little bit more about the the One Health concept?
1: Right. So so, um, exactly as you said, that, you know, One Health um, is a it's a perspective. There's a One Health initiative. People sometimes describe it as like a, an approach. Uh, but it it what you're describing is this, um, it's really a reality that human health, non-human animal health, which I'm going to call animal health for shorthand, but human health, animal health, and environmental health are interdependent and interconnected. And that, you know, it's it's pretty foolish ultimately to try to Um, understand a human medical problem in a really holistic way without those perspectives. I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't try to, you wouldn't prescribe a drug that hadn't had preclinical, you know, studies on it, right? So we we understand that our biology is is connected to the biology of whatever the model organisms are that are, you know, that are identified. Um, But at the same time, we know that as a physician, it would be foolish to not consider how the environment is impacting, you know, development, you know, pathogenesis, all that kind of stuff. So um, what One Health really is saying is that, you know, we need to look holistically in an integrated way at disease. Now, the leaders in One Health are mostly veterinarians. And it's really interesting because when when I started, you know, A, just going to the zoo and then learning about whatever is breast cancer or ovarian cancer or Fractures or compulsive disorder, psychopathology, right? In other species, um, you know, I here I'd done a psych residency, I'd done internal medicine, I'd done card, so those diseases were really the most interesting to me. I found the zoonotic stuff to be, you know, important but um, a little more obvious in a way, like that's what I was taught in med school about, you know, brucellosis and that kind of stuff. So, um so One Health, the leadership has mostly been veterinary, veterinarian and has, when I sort of entered the One Health space in like the late 2000s, it was almost all about zoonoses. It was about West Nile virus, uh, it was about. Um, it, it was about the reality that the emerging, you know, most of the emerging pathogens that had real potential to create human disease were gonna come from the animal reservoir and food safety, and, you know, um, uh, resistance, antimicrobial resistance was a really big one. So all of those things could not be more important to human health, for sure. No. But what I found more interesting um, was the cancer connection, the cardiovascular stuff. I I mean, dilated cardiomyopathy in other species, the fact that, like, postpartum cardiomyopathy seems to be much more common among okapi than giraffe, right? So there are four modern giraffe species and the okapi and the giraffe shared a common ancestor about 11 and a half million years ago. And they're the only two surviving um, lineages from giraffidae. And yet, so you have these lineages that are pretty, I mean, 11 and a half million years is not that long, right? And yet there's this, this vulnerability to peripartum cardiomyopathy in one and, and not in the other. And so like, that stuff to me was fascinating and um and then the psychiatric stuff so one health is all of it one health is is the way we all should be thinking in my mind uh and so what i'm actually trying to do partly in in my work is just to bring physicians and med students and other human health professionals like into this and show them the connection and when when we have People coming to our ubiquity conferences, at physicians particularly or young physicians, and they learn for the first time that um, well, we did it, we did one on glioblastoma. We did a, a, a ubiquity conference actually on neurological and biobehavioral disorders. And you know, when you get like a human oncologist talking to a veterinary oncologist about the management of of a glio, and um, or you have um a psychiatrist who specializes in compulsive disorders and um, self-injury, and you have a veterinary, someone who's got boards and veterinary behavior who deals with feather plucking disorder in birds. Um, And you hear the two of them meeting each other and talking to each other. That's one health.
0: I want to follow up with about something you just said in terms of the interaction between uh, veterinarians and human medical doctors for lack of a better better term it sounds like learning about the field there's been a little bit of an asymmetry and maybe it's highlighted by what you just said about one health really being led by the the vet medicine field why is that that you know in the past that the veterinarians have been more the ones to reach out to the human medicine side whereas it doesn't necessarily go the opposite way am i am i incorrect on that
1: you're right. You're correct. I mean, there, things are changing. Like, in the last 10 years, I mean, Zubiquity, so our first book was Zubiquity, and that was in 2012, um, so it's, like, literally a decade, and and our conferences, the first ubiquity conference we had, and by the way, if people are listening to this and are interested in these conferences, um, on my website, there's, a like, a, a, a tab where you can learn about them, and we don't, these are, this is my passion. Um, there's no profit here. There's no... Uh, and we don't put them on. Usually we're some vet school or med school somewhere um, either in the country or around the world says, hey, we really want to do this. And we kind of help them to shape it and make it happen. Our next one is going to be in Portugal uh, in July, actually. Many MDs don't know much about veterinary medicine, but every vet knows a ton about human medicine. So if you talk to a veterinary, like I'm writing a a, a state-of-the-art review on um, for Jack on um, the Journal Journal of American College of Cardiology EP on comparative arrhythmias. And so yesterday I was on the phone with a couple of equine cardiologists from um, Belgium. And like they read circulation and they read Jack and they come to, you know, the big cardiovascular conferences. Um, The vast majority, I would say like almost all human cardiologists that I've encountered and I've asked the question, don't read vet journals. So there's like that. So which is sort of an you know obvious point. There's lots of reasons for that. But um, so but I think the real problem is that there there are two levels of it. One is that in medical school we're taught from not a particularly comparative perspective, like we learn about the importance of lab animal medicine and we know that they're traditional model organisms that, you know, we um, but other than that, and we learn about zoonoses, right? We learn that that's sort of the intersection between human and animal health. Beyond that, I don't remember, a, in, at least when I was in med school, I don't remember a single moment where I learned about, you know, the occurrence of um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in cats, which it does, or the occurrence of, you know, aortic dissection in another grade ape. I mean, that it just was not on anybody's radar. Vets, on the other hand, their their education is is completely comparative from day one. So when they learn about heart failure, they're learning about heart failure in a in another four cardiac cham- two ventricled mammal um, or bird, but they're also learning about, you know, fish and, you know, myocarditis in fish, which is an, a real issue that can result in cardiomyopathy or in reptiles. And so they're, they're it's all comparative. But that medical education issue i think is a sort of a symptom it's downstream from the bigger issue which is going to sound sort of like a nerdy thing to say but it's a the problem is is human exceptionalism um and i you know i teach several courses and i go into this at depth and 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 i guess the other way of saying it which is like not about is that it's anthropocentric that we as a species, particularly I think when we come from a product of a certain certain religious and cultural traditions, you know if if man was created was created in God's image right that there is something um, quote unquote special about us and elevated and my experience is that even among people who are scientifically you know very sophisticated and um, are in the life sciences and even have deep knowledge of evolution, If you scratch the surface, you know, human exceptionalism seeps up. And what I, my definition would be um, the many unexamined assumptions about the uniqueness of our traits, including our vulnerability to certain diseases. So for example, as a cardiologist, right? I mean, you spend your entire career talking about risk factors. And when people say, what are the causes of atherosclerosis, right? You tick them off. Your, your mind goes to Framingham. And so I had literally, I mean, maybe I shouldn't even admit this publicly, but I had never even considered the idea that um, do non-human animal vas does athero happen in other species? Do other species get like myoc- plaque and MI and ischemic cardiomyopathy? And the answer is They do. Now, not commonly, and it's not an epidemic, right? But um, that got me thinking about, well, what are, you know, why, why did I never even think about the essential vascular biology that, you know, is, so that's what human, so I think the problem is human exceptionalism. And we, um, and I, and the reason I believe this is the case is for now almost, 15 years, I've been lecturing to medical students and physicians um, on the shared diseases of humans and animals and human and animal um, health. And very often when I talk about certain diseases, um, well, in the past, at least, sometimes people would laugh. Like if I would, you know, I would talk about the incidents, I would, I was, you know, just whether it was something like as serious as breast cancer or ovarian cancer or um, melanoma or, um uh, AFib, right? The management of AFib in or SVT in dogs and stuff. And and I'd hear giggling. And I for the longest time I thought, what why are why is someone laughing, right? And I I actually think the reason I'm not sure, but I think the reason that I heard that laughter is that it it seems it it seems there's something it seems wrong about a human condition like atrial fibrillation and you know a horse, but maybe maybe there's another reason for the laughter, but I think human exceptionalism is so entrenched in modern medicine that um, that it it's created a, a knowledge gap uh, between the fields. And by that, that's a nice way of saying that our physicians are um, unaware and it's a pleasant way of saying ignorant. And um, that's one, and two, I think that humans, unconsciously hold themselves superior to other species and we think you hear people saying we're more evolved well it's it's the it the and physicians are so intelligent that if you take a moment and you kind of re-examine that then they kind of understand but um so i think that's why i think that um that therefore the physicians i think physicians see themselves if if you unconsciously feel humans are superior then maybe the doctors that take care of humans are superior in your own head to the doctors that are take, taking care of non-human animals, something like that. But, um, you know, I've spent now so long spending so much time with veterinarians and I've heard many of their stories. And, you know, sometimes you hear some pretty horrible stories of uh, we about just disrespect but, you know, I think it's changing. And I do, uh, I do remind them that even within medicine, within human medicine, there are hierarchies where certain specialties look down on other specialties. So it's not, it's not, it's personal, but it's not uniquely personal.
0: We'll be back next week with the second part of my conversation with Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. We continue to discuss the intricacies of One Health, touching on how we could learn about mental health from the animal kingdom. And why more and more medical students are spending time learning medicine out of the classroom and at their local zoo. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Take care.